0: Number 9, the book of Acts, chapter number 9, and for a few moments I'm going to minister to you about pathways to God. I'll read the first nine verses. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He said, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open. He saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight. Neither did he eat or drink. Verse 3 again, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Pathways to God. If, If someone were to ask me, are there many paths? to God, I would have to answer, it depends on what you mean by many paths. If you're asking me, can you make it to heaven following any religion you desire? My answer is no. But if by that you mean that all of us can be on different paths in life and then God bring us through a variety of circumstances to him, then quite naturally I'm going to say yes. All of us in here are different. All of our testimonies are different. All of us come from diverse backgrounds. Our parents' origins may differ, When we think about the people in the scripture who came to know God, let's never forget that there is no one particular formula in which it happens. Remember the story of Jacob? Jacob was a man that was fleeing for his life because his brother wanted to kill him. His mother told him it's better for you if you get out of here as quick as you can. His grandfather and his father (coughs) knew God, You can read the stories of them building altars unto God. But when you look at Jacob's life during that period, he doesn't seem to be much of a man that cared anything for God at all. But somewhere on that trip from daddy's house going to his family members in Iraq, he met God in a dream out in the desert. The Lord stood at the top of a ladder. And once he had that vision and he opened his eyes, he realized this place must be the house of God because surely the presence of the Lord is here. Other people in the Bible didn't meet God that way, but he sure did. And your story may be different from your neighbor. However you came to Christ, however you were saved, whatever it was that led you into a strong, vibrant relationship with him. It may be unlike Jacob's, but maybe it was like Moses. It was a man that murdered somebody, divinely saved and delivered as a baby, but nevertheless, having been raised in an Egyptian house, he murdered a man trying to save a Hebrew brother for four decades. He lived out in the wilderness as a shepherd, essentially trying to hide from ever being captured and having to go before maybe some kind of a court, but even out there in the wilderness he found that one day as he was walking around up there in the mountains with those sheep, he found a bush that was on fire and found that God was in the bush. Undoubtedly he probably passed that bush on other occasions, but this time the bush burned and God spoke to God doesn't have to use extraordinary things to get to you. It can be something as simple as a bush. If he wants to set a bush on fire, he can talk to you. If God wants to make the petals of a flower rotate in a certain direction to grab your attention, he can do that. If God wanted to speak to you through a cat's meow or a dog's bark, he could do that. Even the child of a baby can somehow speak on behalf of God. If we think about that, then we never forget that people throughout Scripture met God in ways that leave us astonished. Same thing with you. And same thing with other people. Dwight L. Moody was a great evangelist 120 years ago. Born in the New England states, Looking to better himself, he moved to Chicago to work for an uncle. His uncle sold shoes. Mr. Moody spent time in that shoe shop working and came to know Christ in the shoe shop. The Lord was working on his heart, preparing him, but it was there in the process of being a shoe salesman that he came to know the Lord. And he went on to become probably of the second half of the 19th century, one of the greatest evangelists that America ever had. He wasn't an ordained preacher. He was a layman that became a minister. Started off with a Sunday school teaching kids. And because of that, doors opened up. But how did he meet God? Where was his path? His path took him from the New England states to Chicago, and he met God in a shoe store. Where did you meet God? How did God do it for you? When you consider that, It gives you pause when you think about this gentleman by the name of Saul this evening. Notice verse 1, he's breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He's angry, he's bitter, he's unforgiving, he's upset. But this is what Saul was before he became a Christian. Every now and then it's good to look back on your past and recall what you were like in your B.C. days. Before Christ days. Before Christian days. so say, why is that important, pastor? Well, it's important to not forget where you came from, for one, but also just to to be able to identify what you used to be like. Were you mean-spirited? Were you a liar? Did you have a foul mouth? Were you an adulterer? Were you a drunkard? Did you abuse various substances were you a brawler were you lazy so you look back on your life and you you see how how god by his grace has come and challenged you and changed you by new birth and then of course the, the next thing that's important is looking back on what you used to be you become grateful now because of the transformation that has occurred this man saul put people in jail and even after he became a christian some of these folks were still incarcerated Some of them still met their death. He's preaching Jesus, telling folks about how to get saved. And grandmothers and grandfathers and parents that he put in jail were still behind bars. That must have been difficult. How do you go into a house, physically grab a lady, snatch her from her crying children, then haul her off to jail because she loves Jesus? How do you grab a father in the presence of his family with people screaming and yelling, please don't take him, and without any feeling at all, take that person to the nearest jail and put them in there simply because you so hate their religion. Sometimes it's good to look back on what you used to be like. Maybe you mocked God, mocked Christ, didn't care about the Lord, and thought those Bible thumpers were... People that were ignorant and provincial and narrow-minded, didn't know anything about God. You had no idea that these were folks that ministered in the Spirit and that walked with God, prayed through and talked to the Lord and supernatural things helped them. You had no idea that the angel of the Lord encamped about those that fear him as you fought against God's people and talked about them. That's what Saul did. Verses 1 and 2 make Very plain, he was a Pharisee, and he was opposed to Jesus' followers. So here was a man that used religion against Christians. You can see this all throughout the book of Acts. You can see this in the Old Testament. Jezebel brought the prophets of Baal into the old Israelite White House and fed them At her table. Took the taxes of the Israelites and fed the false prophets and false priests. The Bible teaches. And she persecuted everybody that loved the true God. She used religion. Well, people still do that today. I lived in Saudi Arabia. They they had, like Paul was here... A group of people somewhat like the religious police. I only know of two countries left that have them. One would be Iran, the other would be Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, they call the Mutawa. Their objective is to ensure that everybody follows the Islamic precepts. That means you have to dress a certain way when you go outside. Five times a day, when it's time to pray, all the business owners on any street in Saudi Arabia, they have to close their doors, come outside, and put a rug on the ground, and they have to pray towards Mecca. Doesn't matter if it's a barber, the barber closes his shop, the people in the chair get out and get on their knees. If cars are going down the road at prayer time, all the cars stop. They don't have to get out, but the cars have to stop. The grocery stores, every place. And I've seen in that country where the ladies come into this world as a baby without a birth certificate. Babies come into this world without the ability to ride a bicycle in public, drive a car, can't go to the grocery store shopping without their husband's permission, can't leave the country without a passport, but can't get one without their husband's permission and their father's permission. If a man wants to divorce a woman, all he has to say to her is three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. In a world like that, there's no Christian television. Christian literature is banned. You'll never see a cross there unless God turned that whole country upside down. So there's nothing there to show you that Jesus is Lord in any place on this planet. Imagine a world where a little girl, when she's seven years old, she has to dress in a black covering called an abaya, and then every time she goes out in public, she stares at the world through a veil, not allowed to show any skin, lest that part of her skin become an enticement for a man, where a seven-year-old girl can end up engaged or married by the age of nine to a man that's 50, 60, or 70. Hard to imagine a world like that. But not too long ago, there was a school, all girls' school, because they're all segregated. Boys go to one school, girls go to the other, because you can't have them assimilated in the same institution. Uh, girls' school burned down. While it was on fire, the girls who were in the classroom had taken off their veils to sit at the desk, they uh, tried to flee the building. And of course, the Mutawa were out there with whips to beat them back in the building because they were running out of the building, showing their skin to all of the fire department and everybody, and hundreds of them died. I used to hear stories when I worked at the embassy of the Mutawa, taking women, snatching them out of the car because they were improperly dressed or parts of their hair was exposed and physically (laughs) pummeling them in public. You talk about fear. Well, this is the kind of a man Paul was. He was a Pharisee. We're here to keep every jot and tittle of the law, and it doesn't matter that you're Jewish if you say you worship a Messiah that we crucified, and you're saying he's alive. You deserve to go to jail. That was Paul. That man used religion in the same way Muslims used religion. You probably remember the story. I know i told you the story years ago of the family of Christians, missionary family in India. Hindu people were mad because the missionaries came to that village to preach, preach Christ and was winning converts. The Muslims trapped the Christians in the car, the father and the kids. The Hindus surround, surrounded the vehicle, set the vehicle on fire and refused to let the missionary and the kids out and stood there and watched them burn Folks, don't tell me people don't use religion in a, in a bad way. We don't even need to mention the Crusades. Those folks didn't know God anyhow. Promising people they'll go to heaven because they went and butchered a whole lot of folks on their way to Jerusalem. And even in South America and Central America, I can tell you story after story. Our Roman Catholicism has done everything it could to stamp out the Protestant movement with a gospel being preached so here's my point people like Saul at this time that same spirit is in a whole lot of people and folks think they're on the pathway to knowing God scripture tells us that there are folks that do these things and believe they're doing God's service they think this means I know God I'm demonstrating I have a relationship with God by my ability to persecute you and to antagonize you But notice in verse number three, as he journeyed, suddenly something happened. And that's usually how God moves. He moves quickly. Everybody say quickly. Quickly. It doesn't take God long, folks. 120 people on the day of Pentecost, suddenly, mighty Russian wind comes in. God can do in a split second what it'll take somebody else to do in a half hour or several weeks or months. God can take a broken and wounded heart and do something wonderful for it, and he can inflame it with love, just like that. If you don't believe me, think about how he changed you. Remember what Saul was like. This is why when Saul became a Christian, he did everything he could to preach the gospel around the world, because he who had been forgiven much... Loved God greatly, and he knew that people had died like Stephen because of what he did. So he wanted to give all that he had to God. He was indebted to God. He said, God, if you could forgive me, a self-righteous sinner like I was, believing that I was better than other people, if you could forgive me for every evil thing I had ever done, there's no place on this earth I won't go to tell folks about God. That's a man that met God. And any man or woman that comes to know God in that kind of a way, it's hard to keep their mouth closed because they realize that, that God has changed them. So when he was on that road headed to Damascus, between his starting, starting point and Damascus, he came in contact with God. And it was in that light that God appeared to him. That's what all of us need. The illumination that comes from the presence of God. We need God to turn the light on when a message is being proclaimed. We need God to turn the light on when a teaching is coming to us. When a prophecy comes forth or a tongue, an interpretation. Sometimes when someone lays hands upon us, we need a light that comes on. And when that light comes on, suddenly we see things we've never seen before. Or we see the same thing but see it different. This is what happened here to this this gentleman. All of us need different experiences with God. It's not just that we need to be saved. But after we become Christian, we need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from stinking thinking. We need to be saved from bad habits. We need to be saved from how we used to believe. And those things only happen when God encounters us on the road from here to there. And remember, folks, we're always going somewhere. Scripture says you're going from faith to faith, from glory to glory. As long as you're a Christian, you'll always have to believe, and as long as you're believing, you're going from here to there. And it's in between all of these starting and ending points that God gives us these experiences. And one experience builds upon another experience. So God worked quickly upon his heart, and this man became a a Christian, so we we see here doesn't doesn't take long. God worked really fast. Now there there was a, a, a missionary back in the colonial days of, of this nation named uh, David Brannard, I believe. <clears throat> but I've I've read his diary several times. Uh, Jonathan Edwards kind of wrote a biography of this gentleman because I think Brannard was living with him when he died. But if you ever read that diary, then you know Mr. Brannard Being a Puritan and a Calvinist person was under the impression that it's very difficult to become a Christian. And he agonized page after page. It took him months, possibly even a year and a half, to ever believe that God had saved him. Now as inspiring as his diary is and as informative as it is of the colonial days, I just want you to know it doesn't take that long. You can be saved like that. The moment a man or woman repents, comes to know God. You can have assurance immediately. What he didn't know is that the moment you become a Christian, the devil shows up six seconds later and said, nothing happened to you. You know you're not saved. I don't know why you run around here telling people you love Jesus. Now you didn't love him ten minutes ago. What makes you think you love him now? See, See, he didn't know how to deal with that. But the light shined and the Lord came through that light and in verse 4 he asked Paul a question or Saul a question he had never con- considered. And that Why are you persecuting me? Which essentially he's asking, Why, what are you doing on this road? See, Why are you going to Damascus to apprehend people that love me? Saul didn't think he was doing anything wrong. And if you look back on your life before you became a Christian, you didn't think you were doing anything wrong. I, I was talking with a, a lady who, <coughs> who was interviewing me one time on La See, and, and we were talking in between uh, segments on a commercial. And I was asking her a little bit about her testimony. And, and her name is Valerie. She's still probably doing stuff on Christian television now, I'm sure. But, but she told me, she said, you you know, you know, Pastor Darrell, when, when I was a sinner, you know you hear all these stories about people talking about they were in they didn't like what they were doing and how much they hated and they wish they could get out of it and, and all of this. She said, I, I wasn't like that at all. I was a happy sinner. She said, I enjoyed my life. And she said, there was nothing going on in, in my life that ever led me to believe that I needed God. But she said, then one day somebody shared the gospel with me and suddenly conviction came upon me. And that's when I knew I was separated from God. Now, Paul, of course, I'm sure if if somebody would have asked him about his former life, he would have said he was a happy sinner. Happy, fervent, earnest, ready to imprison people that love the Lord Jesus Christ. God comes along and says, what are you doing on this road? Because God knows that what you're doing isn't amounting to anything. So why not get saved? Why attack God's people? Why spend your life fighting against the very people that are trying to expand the borders of the kingdom of God? But Saul was exhibiting the sentiment of the greater community. The greater community hated Christians. So he was just a reflection of that. Don't, don't be surprised by the people on television, the reporters and actors and people who despise what we believe. In fact, you, you will notice now that there, there was a time... When people who lived a certain lifestyle would never even claim to be Christian. But now they not only claim to be Christian, they claim their version of Christianity is right and our version of Christianity is wrong. So if you say, I believe that a guy and a gal should get together, that's all you narrow-minded people. Don't you realize this is the 21st century? God is a God of love and, 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 and God's not even interested in that thing quite like you think he is. That's what's taking place. And it's those kinds of people who are on a path and they don't realize that what they need is a confrontation with God that creates an experience where there's an explosion of the light of God that changes them just like that. And we can argue with them and we can debate with them and say, look, here's what the Bible says and this is what you need to know. And they'll get angry like Saul and they'll be ready to stone the church. But what we need is the power of the Holy Ghost and Christ to deal with. And if the Lord ever gets involved, I can assure you, good things are going to to happen. It it's happened that way throughout the history of the church. What makes you think it's gonna be any different now? People are calling what's bad good and what's good, they're calling bad. Doesn't change anything, but God's word still says the same thing, but people are given different terms and definitions to things that God has said is right and wrong. So what God has rejected, people are approving, and what we approve, God still says, I reject. You need the light turned on, people. What he's saying? You're on the road, the wrong road. What are you doing on this road? Rather than hindering my church, he's saying you ought to help my church. Promote the kingdom of God? Why put obstacles in the way of all of these people? Now now this this question was so startling to Paul in verse 4 that when God in verse 5 explained to him what he was doing and who he was, he just couldn't believe it. Because he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah anyway. He thought he was dead. He certainly didn't believe he was raised from the dead. And now here he is coming to him in a vision. And the Lord is, is telling him, <clears throat> I'm the one you're actually persecuting. And he goes on to say to him, it's very difficult for you to kick against the pricks. Which is to say, you have to understand there's no way you're ever going to beat me. Okay, I'm not an easy target. And I'm not just going to lay down and let you do whatever you want to do. But when I begin to fight back, you're in trouble. So in verse 6, he was trembling and astonishing. And you can see from verse 4 to verse 6, it couldn't have been longer than maybe 10 seconds or so for the Lord to get that word out. And within a few seconds, here's what Saul says to the Lord. What would you have me do and that's the question what would you have me do God where do you want me to go what do you want me to say how do you want to lead me in what direction do you want my life to go and I can promise you if you're looking for direction God can provide it he can tell you what you need to know but you got to be willing to ask And once you ask, then be willing to hear what he has to say and do not allow the adversary to cause you to believe that what God says won't work for you. Now, God tells him to go to Damascus, but he has to go to Damascus now with a different objective. His objective before was to apprehend Christians and put him in jail. Now he's going to Damascus to end up in the home of a believer so that God can send somebody else to him, lay his hands on him, and his eyes can be opened and he be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Damascus becomes a totally different setting now. So sometimes when you start off on a path and you're moving in a particular direction, you have in your mind what you're expecting the destination to look like, only to get to the destination and realize it doesn't look like anything you originally conceived it to be. And that's what happened with him. Man's life was changed. I think it's in Acts chapter 8 where Philip was having that great revival in Samaria. Casting out devils, healing the sick, joy was in the city, and in the middle of all of that, can you imagine God, God, said, God said to the man of God in the middle of that six, seven week revival with oh, all kinds of good things taking place, said, I want you to leave here now, and I want you to go south toward Gaza. Just start walking, I'll tell you where to go when you get there. And Sure enough, he, started, he had to tell the people, I've got to get ready to go, go. All these people you've led to the Lord, all these miracles that are taking place, people turned on to God like they've never been turned on to God. You can't leave us now. I have to leave you now. God has spoken to me. And sure enough, he starts making his way through the desert. He's waving goodbye to the people. They're weeping and they're crying. Some are probably angry and upset that he's leaving. And sure enough, when he gets down there, He happens to see a little chariot going along. The Spirit of God spoke to him and said, I want you to head on over there to that chariot. When he gets to that chariot, just when he's getting up close to it, he hears a a man. And he's speaking in a language that obviously Philip can understand. And he's reading from the scriptures, Hebrew Bible. And the Lord said, join yourself to that chariot. Climb on up in there with him. He gets up in that chariot and, and he says to him, do you even know what you're reading? the man said, how in the world can I unless I have somebody tell me what all this means? Philip explained to him who Jesus was according to Isaiah's prophecies. He obviously told the man about salvation and about being baptized in water because the man said to him, well, here's a pound of water right now. Can we get out And go down in there and sure enough, they went down in that water. He baptized them in the water. And when the man came up, it said, Philip disappeared. Carried away by the power of God. How would you like to be baptized by somebody like that? See, I was telling you earlier about going to heaven early. Imagine going down in the water and coming up. And then when you stand back up, you look around and the one, the baptizer, has gone. And God whisked him away to some other location. But here's the point. Crowds are not as impressive to God as they are to you and me. And numbers don't matter as much to God as they do to you and me. The one matters to God. If God has to send Philip from one location hundreds of miles to another location to talk to one person, that proves to you and to me that one person is exceptional in the eyes of God. And you should be happy. For every person you've ever witnessed to and every opportunity God has provided for you and the people that he gave you an opportunity to share the gospel with. Don't ever be discouraged because you're sitting in a chariot with one person. You know when you ought to be discouraged? When God's not talking to you about anybody's chariot at all. That's when you ought to be discouraged. But as long as the Lord puts somebody in your path to talk to, you should be happy. As long as there's somebody you can lay hands on. When they say to you, please pray for me, this is what's going on with my family, my kid is having this problem, have your church pray for me. Say, I will have my church pray for you, but how about you and I pray right now? Right now in the grocery store? In front of everybody? Oh, yes, grab their hands, begin, begin to pray. And I, I can promise you, pretty soon somebody will be coming across that loudspeaker saying, Steve, there's healing taking place in aisle number three. See? Yeah. But if we give God something to work with, then we give God opportunities to do something supernatural. If we present ourselves to God as an empty possibility and say, Lord, here I am, fill this body with the Holy Ghost. If we say, Father, here I am, I'm in need of direction from you, then God can speak to you. Final thing I'll say to you, I was telling folks this morning, when Jesus goes to the top of that mountain for the transfiguration, he sees... Elijah and Moses, they appear, and the disciples did what disciples typically do. They fell asleep. They woke up, saw a tremendous vision. You know, most people, they they sleep through the move of God anyhow. And by the time they realize it happened, it's just at the end when they're hearing the voice, and the Lord is saying, this is my beloved servant, hear him. They wake up in the fog, and then they're trying to figure out what's going on, and then it's over with. But but I say to people, when you're looking for direction and you're wanting God to talk to you, just like when Jesus prayed and he was transfigured on that mountain, and when you get down on your knees and you talk to God, that becomes your individual mountaintop. That becomes your period to spend time with God. And I ask the question, what is God saying to you in that mountaintop? Because whatever he's saying to you in prayer is going to be different than what you hear when you get up. When you're down there in prayer, God will open that thing up through a vision and show you what you can become, what you can do, the supernatural possibilities of what can occur if you trust him. But no sooner than you get off your knees, the devil is there to say, you got to be kidding. You dream that up yourself. There's no way that's going to happen. So I tell people, what? Do you see and hear God saying to you in that mountaintop? Then order your steps according to the top of that mountain. I think this evening would be a good time to just spend a little time in prayer. See? Just a little time in the presence of God. Now I realize this carpet isn't as thick as it could be, but you've knelt before. If you want to walk back and forth, you can walk back and forth. I'll probably be stretched out on my face back here behind this pulpit. But posture, although it doesn't produce holiness, the one thing I do know, it does show God that you're earnest and you're serious. Husbands need to see their wives pray. Wives need to see their husbands pray. Children need to see their parents pray. Parents need to see their children pray. Friends need to see the people they worship with pray. Let's spend a little bit of time talking with God. You never know what God may say to you tonight. He may have already talked to you through this message, but in the next few moments, you never know what God may open up for you as you talk with him. Amen? Come on, let's stand on our feet as we just get ready to just move into a... Brief time of prayer. Father, how wonderful it is for us to have a relationship with you. Now, oh God, for just a few moments, we just want to settle our hearts and our spirits in your presence. And as we do so, God, we want you to talk to each one of us. It could be in a dream or a vision, could be in a prophecy, could just be you talking to us about a scripture, God. But for a few moments, talk to us as we talk to you. All right, folks. Just find a place to pray. Just a few moments. I'll get you up here in a little while. Just.